This is an independent project funded by no one else but our listeners. For subtitles, please visit our YouTube channel. Subscribe for free on YouTube to get us closer to monetization. For access to all the locked content, please consider becoming a paid subscriber for less than three US dollars per month on Spotify, or support us on Patreon and Ko-fi. Details are in the descriptions. Thank you. Journey to the West, an audio drama series. Production notes, episode ten. Hello, dear listeners. This is Lin, the voice of the Fifth Monkey. How are you guys doing? Still missing Wu Kong? I also miss doing my monkey voice. But anyway, let's get straight to chapter ten since we have a lot to cover in this episode. In the audio drama, Chapter Ten, Part One corresponds to the second half of Chapter Ten in the Yuan Jenner translations, and Part Two corresponds to the first half of their Chapter Eleven. In this episode, we will look closer to Emperor Tang Taizong's life story and how the creators of Journey to the West absolutely did not care about historical accuracy. Before we begin, allow me to once again remind you that emperors in the story use the majestic plural or the royal we. To address themselves, this is a replacement for the imperial first-person pronoun "zhen" in Chinese. Okay, now on to Tang Taizong. We cover some basics in the previous production notes, so if you missed that, this will be a good place to pause and head to episode nine first. Journey to the West got his name and titles right, thankfully, but in chapter ten, we also get to meet some of his family members, and that's where things start to get messy. If you are reading the Anthony Yu translation in part one of his introduction for the novel titled "Historical and Literary Antecedents," he wrote that Taizong claimed the throne by quote, "murdering his two brothers and possibly even his own father." Unquote. Taizong did murder his two brothers in the famous Xuanwu Gate incident, which was a palace coup that took place in the summer of 626 A.D. This is not in dispute, but Tang Taizong also absolutely did not murder his own father. I don't know where Anthony got that idea, but this is not supported by any existing historical record. After the coup, Taizong's father Li Yuan made him the crown prince before giving him the throne merely three months later. So when Tang Taizong became emperor, his father was still very much alive. Li Yuan would then be known as Tai Shang Huang. A title reserved for the living father of an emperor. He then basically entered retirement and passed away at the age of 69 in 635 A.D., which was the ninth year of the Zhengguan reign. There are a lot of records showing his whereabouts and remarks during retirement, and there were many signs that showed his relationship with Taizong was generally peaceful. Li Yuan approved of Taizong's leadership as well as where the country was heading. Honestly, there was just no reason for Taizong to not give his father a comfortable life, given what had already happened between them. If you looked into the life of Tang Taizong before he claimed the throne, you will be looking at a young man who was active in the battlefield from as early as 16. His father Li Yuan founded Tang Dynasty in 618 A.D. But he could not have united the country without his second son Li Shimin crushing these other competing military forces that were feeding on the fall of the Sui Dynasty. 
Li Shimin's unequivocal contribution to the dynasty was one of the main point of conflict between him and his elder brother, then Crown Prince Li Jiancheng. On one hand, you have the eldest son as the legitimate heir to the throne who wasn't making any major mistake. On the other hand, you have the second prince whose unparalleled military accomplishments exhausted all means of reward. On top of that. Li Yuan made some serious missteps in balancing the power relation between his two sons, which pushed their conflict to a point of no return. Before the Xianwu Gate incident, multiple assassination attempts have been made by Li Jiancheng and Li Yuanji against Li Shimin, including poisoning his drinks, which almost did kill him. So they were at a point where only one side could survive and win. There was simply no option of coexistence. Ultimately, Tang Taizong was the victor. The rest is history. The reason we found it necessary to sketch out the backstory of Tang Taizong's journey to the throne is that in Chapter Ten and also widespread folk imagination, Li Shimi was depicted as being haunted by the memory of murdering his brothers, as if he somehow felt guilty or remorseful. But if you actually look at what went down between them, you can tell that this was a choice he had to make in order to survive. I'm not even saying he's the good guy in this story. High-stake power struggles are no place for simplistic worldviews or even common sense. Li Shimin knew he had to kill his brothers, or he himself would be killed. His real concern was legitimacy. He knew coups would leave a bad taste in people's mouths. This was one reason that he went out of his way to be a good emperor to the people and also treat his father well. He wanted to make sure he had a good enough record in history so the people would be less critical of how he became emperor. In Journey to the West, you see an almost cowardly emperor who seemed neither mentally nor physically capable of carrying himself gracefully through hell. But Tang Taizong was a soldier and legendary archer who fought brutal wars and was witness, since a very young age, to a nation crippled with death and destruction. Personal experience with human suffering was another reason he wanted to be a good emperor. In other words, he went through real hell. Fictional hell would not scare him, not even a little bit. Now back to his family. In Chapter Ten, we briefly saw the mention of an Empress Dowager, which would be the title for an Empress Living Mother. In reality, there was no Empress Dowager during Tang Taizong's reign because his birth mother, Lady Dou, passed away when he was still a little boy, years before Tang Dynasty was even founded. Li Yuan never took another woman for a wife, so when he became emperor, he had no empress, and therefore. Tang Taizong did not have an empress dowager. Li Yuan did have plenty of concubines and had kids with them, but the way polygamy works in ancient China is that you only have one wife at a time. Only this relationship is considered legitimate marriage. Other women in the harem are concubines, and their children are theoretically not in competition for the inheritance of the father's title and status. Unless there are no other choices left, this was why only Li Shimin, Li Jiancheng, and Li Yuanji were in competition for the throne. All three of them were sons of Lady Dou, who was Li Yuan's only wife. 
Now we move on to Taizong's harem. In Chapter Ten, there was also a brief mention of his wife, the Empress. In the Chinese original, she was addressed as San Gong Huanghou. Anthony Yu's translation for this name was Queens of Three Palaces, and Jenner's was Empresses of the Three Palaces. Both are wrong. First of all, even just within the context of Journey to the West, with all the inaccurate Ming Dynasty reimaginations of Tang Taizong's life and family, at no point of the story was this Empress plural. Even within this novel, Tang Taizong only had one Empress. And secondly, in real life, Tang Taizong also only ever had one Empress, whose family name was Zhang Sun. They married in their teens and had a loving relationship through thick and thin. But we also understand why Yuan Jenner would mistake the name for a title assigned to multiple people. It's the three palaces that confused them. Upon first glance, you would think in each palace lived one empress, so three palaces must mean three empresses. But this makes no sense because, again, same with the one wife, multiple concubines policy. You can only have one woman as empress, regardless of how many other women there are in the harem. That's the norm. Moreover, the three palaces here do not all refer to palaces of the empress women. Depending on the specific time period, three palaces could refer to the palaces of the emperor, the empress dowager, and the empress. Sometimes one of the palaces could even refer to the empress grandmother if she's still around. In other words, it's just a vague reference to where the empress lived when you call her empress of the three palaces. But again, Yu and Jenner were not the only ones confused by this title. Many chapters down the line, you will find out that the creators of Journey to the West also took this title at face value. Anyway, back to the Empress. Speaking of Empress Johnson, it's honestly a shame that she was thrown into the background, silent and nameless. Because given the type of woman she was, she certainly wouldn't just be quietly sobbing in the dark. You're talking about a woman who was constantly on the verge of losing her husband before she even turned twenty-five. She was the one who gave the soldiers a pep talk before they left for a freaking coup, knowing very well that could be her last day alive. Even as empress, she would carry poison on herself. So if he, by any chance, died an untimely death due to illness, she would follow him. He went through hell as a young man, and she went through that same hell right alongside him. This couple would not be fearful of ghosts. Moving on to a lighter subject, this is something we didn't take out from the story, even though it made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Recall in the addendum part one when Xuanzang's father Chen Guangrui headed to Chang'an to take the imperial exam. We said it was the thirteenth year of the Zheng Guan reign, and here in Chapter Ten, which takes place after everything that went down in the addendum, meaning by this time Xuanzang is all grown up, so there's at least eighteen years in between. We are somehow still in the thirteenth year of the Zheng Guan reign. I actually wrote a short research essay on this very topic back in high school. 
But by now, you should be able to guess why this obvious contradiction exists in the novel. Now, repeat after me, because the novel is the product of the collective imagination. That is to say, different parts of the story originated from different sources, and whoever put the chapters together in the end either didn't find out or simply made no attempt to fix this contradiction. Hence. The thirteenth year of Zheng Guan lasted from before Xuanzang's parents even met, all the way till he was a grown man. Enjoy this weird little fun fact. It also exists in the Yuan Jenner translations. You can go check for yourselves. Speaking of the Zheng Guan reign, in the novel it was extended to thirty-three years, but in reality, Tang Taizong was emperor for twenty-three years. He rose to the throne in 626 AD and began using the title Zheng Guan for his reign, starting from 627 AD. He died in 649 AD, marking the end of the Zheng Guan years. So between that, it's roughly 23 years. Again, the creators obviously didn't even try to be historically accurate on this issue. Also, don't you just love how something so serious like life and death can be changed with a writing brush? Judge Sui made a promise to bring Taizong back to life, but when he actually checked the books, he was like, "Crap, he really did have to die right now." Hey, Judge, don't just make these casual promises to people when you haven't done the research. But thankfully, a brush was enough to make the difference, or maybe. He took inspiration from an incident over 500 years ago when a certain monkey made an entire species of animals immortal. It's good to have connections in hell, isn't it? If only the Dragon King of the Jing River has someone to pull the strings on his behalf. By the way, Cui Jue is not a real person; he's a folklore character. Don't mistake him for people who share the same name. We haven't been able to find a convincing person whom he may be based on, so we'll just leave it at that. From this chapter, listeners should again be able to appreciate the things we brought up in previous production notes, like the deification of the emperor. He is a human, a dead one no less, but he was regarded as an equal to the kings who ruled hell. And don't you just love how a human has to freaking die a dramatic death just to show up for court in hell? And the kings were like, "We're done with you now. Let's send you back up to life." The kings in hell are definitely. No strangers to complaints and lawsuits. They filed one themselves against the Wukong back in the day. Like we said before, the Chinese myth world is very much the government, and in this world, the concept of destiny or fate is also front and center. It's why the Dragon King of the Jing River kept fighting these losing battles. He was destined to die. It was written. There was nothing anyone could do to change that. Unless you are a magical monkey or personally know the judge in charge of the books. While we are still in hell, the eighteen layers of hell. This is a concept localized by the Chinese from Buddhist text. The exact names of the eighteen layers may vary depending on the source. So, Journey to the West is certainly not the definitive text on this matter. This is very much a folklore concept. So there's no right or wrong. Okay, now back to the human world. Chapter ten also very neatly incorporated the story of Menshen, or Guardian of the Gates. 
in the story, two real-life generals, Qin Shubao and Yu Chijingde, kept evil spirits at bay by guarding the palace gates. Their portraits were later made to serve as guardians in their place. Visit Chinatown or a Chinese temple, and chances are you will find such portraits on some of the doors. The worship of gate guardians actually goes back way before Tang Dynasty. Traditionally, the guardians were named Shen Shu and Yu Lu, but through the process of deification of famous historical figures, which you should be familiar with by now. By Ming Dynasty, Qin Shubao and Yu Chijingde, two fierce and courageous generals who fought alongside Tang Taizong to secure Tang Dynasty, became folk gods themselves and eventually replaced the original guardians. There are actually many different versions of mention around, depending on where you are. But Qin Shubao and Yu Chijingde are definitely the most popular guardians. While the men are very much real. This tale of guarding the palace gates is also fictional. Just keep that in mind. And in this chapter, we also get the ultimate clue on why the story is definitely the work of Ming Dynasty creators and not anyone before them. Pumpkins, pumpkins, or the South Melon, as we call them in Chinese, originated from the Americas. This is not a native plant in China, and wasn't introduced into China until early 16th century during the Ming Dynasty. So a Tang Dynasty person would have no idea what a South Melon even is. And finally, the last topic of this episode. In Chapter Ten, you will come across a very unique format of poetry where. Verses, usually couplets, are repeated, followed by additional information or emphasis. Let me just play a clip from Chapter Ten, Part One, to illustrate. My lord, your subject's body was before the emperor, yet my dream was far away. My body before the emperor was playing an unfinished game as I entered a haze with my eyes closed. My dream left you far behind as I rode on auspicious clouds, in high spirits and wide awake. So this is just one of the many verses that took on this format in Journey to the West. It has appeared in the novel before, but as we discussed very early on, repetitive description of nature is often simplified to keep the story in the right pace. So we won't be translating those verses sentence by sentence. But in Chapter Ten, Wei Zheng was describing what he did in the dream, which was vital to the plot. So we had to keep his words in full. This format was coined "delayed amplification" by Mr. Anthony Yu in Part Three of his introduction to the novel, titled "The Uses and Sources of Poetry." Quote, Through the many poems of scenic depiction, what the author of Journey to the West seeks to convey to us seems to be the overpowering immediacy of nature. With all its fullness and richly contrasting variety, as the main characters in the narrative experience it, to give us this sense of munificence in the natural order, the verse frequently uses what may be called delayed amplification.、Unquote. You will see this format used throughout the novel, so feel free to go hunt for it in the published translations. 
Oh boy, that was a long production notes, but we have finally reached the end of it. This episode is sponsored by patrons Nat Panda, David E, and our subscribers on podcast. Again, please subscribe and follow us on social media. This is an independent project that could be fully funded by just a fraction of our listeners paying about three U.S. dollars every month. We're on Spotify, YouTube, Patreon, and Ko-fi, so you can choose either monthly subscriptions or one-off donations. We really appreciate the support. This is the Fifth Monkey, and thank you for listening. Journey to the West, an audio drama series, is an independent production by the Fifth Monkey. For subtitles, please visit our YouTube channel. Subscribe for free on YouTube to get us closer to monetization. For access to all the locked content, please consider becoming a paid subscriber for less than three US dollars per month on Spotify, or support us on Patreon and Ko-fi. You will have a chance to access the latest release and other exclusive content. Head to www.thefifthmonkey.com for links to all the platforms we're on and support us on social media. Shares, comments, emails—all are welcome. This is Lin. See you in the next episode.